0: Sorry, that was my youngest crying his way out of the sanctuary in prayer. Would like to just bring to your attention things that some of you know, but maybe some of you don't, just to highlight um, the service that other people do provide, that we're all the beneficiaries of Jerry, who led us in worship today, walked his daughter down the aisle yesterday. This was a fun week. It was a joyous week, but it was a busy week. And part of leading worship means you come here on Wednesday night and you practice with everyone and then you get here very early before anyone else comes and run through everything. And so for Jerry and Brooke, for whom this was a very, very busy week, um, their willingness to do that, to be here on Wednesday and to make sacrifices of their own time and then to come back after they were dancing the night away last night and to still have some energy uh, for this morning. So uh, to both of you and to others, yeah, you have the blessing to take a nap for the next 30 minutes while I'm preaching won't bug me at all. My son didn't even last two seconds in the sanctuary. So yeah, it won't bug me at all. And we're benefited also um, in beautiful ways. Brother David Francis brings these flowers from his own garden every single Sunday that he comes to church with us, just from the bounty of his... Land, He brings it, and uh, almost no one knows, but it's just one of those faithful aspects of service that gives us a visual reminding us of the goodness of God's creation, the beauty of the earth, the variety of God's abilities in the colors and the textures uh, that he places into this world. Also, before most of us are here, there's a team of people that are praying at 8.30 in the morning uh, while we're still getting ready. Uh, For me, I had to get ready in the dark today. There wasn't any power in my house, so have to have a strategy. And so you start with which shirt doesn't need ironing, and then you you build an outfit from there. But other people praying for for all of us as we come and praying for the needs that exist and and stuff that, again, you you won't always see or notice who is doing what, but there is always much more being done uh, than we could, even if we tried to list out in full, that we could recount. So to, to everyone that I did mention, just thank you very much for what you do and the ways you support all of us and encourage us in the worship of God, and point us to him, because he is good, he is worthy of all that. It's a joy to serve him, and and to talk about him, and to tell about him, and to pray to him, and to sing to him, so thank you very, very much. At this time, we're going to open the Bible to the book of Genesis, chapter 30. We're continuing in a series through the life of Jacob, and one of the beautiful things about the Bible is just the variety that it has of genres and types of literature within it, and so sometimes we're reading amazing poetry, sometimes we're, we're reading epic stories, sometimes we're getting pretty nuanced uh, legal commands that are made, and so part of reading it well is to try to understand what type of literature that we're reading, and today's chapter, though, if we were to put it in today's vernacular, uh, it, it feels like we're reading out of the tabloids. Um, this is TMZ in ancient Israel, uh, just to be totally honest with you. you. know, Part of me was just thinking it through and saying, I should just probably skip like good whole parts of this. And then I thought, no, it's, it's in there for a reason. And as we've been saying all along, one of the ways in which Scripture reveals its truthfulness to us is precisely because it doesn't skip some of the details that don't make the very people involved look really good. It doesn't hide those things. An editor at a later point in time doesn't say, we can't let people know this. What are they going to think if they hear this? But what we get recorded for us is uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly in the lives of the people of faith and how they related or disobeyed God and how he worked in their hearts through all of the struggles that they face. But uh, if you're not familiar with the story, the way this chapter is going to go as you're reading, and if you're not familiar with it, we're kind of digging a hole <laughs> as we're starting to read, and things just sound like they're going to get complicated, and we're not sure if anything is right. And eventually, we don't get all the way out of the hole by the time we're at the end, but we see things beginning to move in a bit of a different direction. So, this is Genesis chapter 30. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, this is page 24. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God? who Who is withheld from you, the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. And so she gave him, her servant Bilhah, as a wife. And Jacob went into her and she conceived and bore Jacob a son. And then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. And then Rachel serving conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. And so she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. And so she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. And so he called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. And she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, well, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. And when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. And so he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I am my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. And then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulon. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, "'Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. "'Give me my wives that I may go, "'for you know the service that I have given you.' "'But Laban said to him, "'If I have found favor in your sight, "'I have learned by divination "'that the Lord has blessed me because of you. "'Name your wages and I will give it.' "'And Jacob said to him, "'You yourself know how I've served you "'and how your livestock has fared with me. "'For you had little before I came.' And it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? And he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you'll do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages." So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and the black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted and everyone that had white on it and every lamb that was black and he put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he'd peeled in front of the flocks, the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in the front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth stripes speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks towards the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks and the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. And so the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger's Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, camels and donkeys. And that's where we'll conclude our reading for today. So if you haven't been with us over the last couple of weeks, what happened in the previous chapter was that Jacob had been instructed by his own father to take a journey to find a wife from their own heritage, which was about a 400-mile journey, retracing the steps of his grandfather, Abraham. And when he arrived, he encountered his uncle Laban and was excited to meet him, was glad that this journey had culminated, that he'd actually found the place that he was looking for and the people that he was looking for, and there was a lot of risk associated to that journey. But then when he got there, he ends up not with a wife, but with two wives, and each of those wives having servants. And part of how that came about was that Laban tricked him into marrying the daughter that he did not intend to marry, but then enabled him to marry the daughter that he had thought all along he had been working for and trying to marry. So we saw last time that things were gonna get complicated, that for seven years, Jacob had worked hard expecting a certain outcome, and then he himself had been deceived. Now he found himself in an incredibly difficult situation. But he sought to honor the commitments that he made, even though he was tricked into making them. And culturally, most of them would have viewed their words that way, that their spoken word was like what we have as a legal contract that we sign our name on. If you or I put our name on a piece of paper and we ink it with our names, we're bound by that contract. Now, we do that, because people less and less do what they say. <laughs> and so to really, really ensure that they will do what they say and to follow up on it, we add steps to the process. But basically the goal is how do we get people to keep the commitments that they make? And so in that culture with not the legal system that we have today or the, the way of transferring information like we do, your word was all you have. And so when they spoke something, even if they found out that it wasn't exactly what they thought they were committing to. They sought to honor their words as much as possible. And so Jacob is in a very complicated situation now with two wives who each have a servant. And there is just this foreshadowing as we're reading it that things are going to get worse before they get better. And sure enough, that's what happens at the beginning of our chapter. Things go from bad to worse. For Leah, the older sister who had. Mary Jacob first um, right in the end of the last chapter she had four children and when we come to now chapter 30 Rachel sees that and she envies that Rachel was the one who was desired by Jacob so up until this point we kind of view her as being in the the favorable situation and Leah is the one who was vulnerable but now, at least in a very tangible way, it seems like the tables have turned. She feels like she's getting the short end of the stick. She's not able to have children, and so she becomes envious, and with that envy, asks out in anger, give me children, or I shall die. And that makes Jacob angry against her, and to say, well, I'm not God. Why? Why are you laying this burden on me as if somehow this is a situation that I can control? But surely here they are and in a place that they did not expect to be in all those years that Jacob was working as hard as he could to earn the reputation of his father-in-law and to be able to have the opportunity one day to marry who in his eyes was the girl of his dreams. I mean, it describes it in the last chapter that those seven years of working were like just a few days because of how much He loved her. And that's true. But it's also true now that they're in a very different situation in marriage. And what they desire to have, they can't have. And they're taking their frustrations out on each other. And that's unfortunately often what we do. If you've heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. When we are hurt by someone, we often take out that hurt on other people our envy, our bitterness, our jealousy can often express itself and redirect itself in anger towards other people. And so this situation goes from bad to worse as then for Rachel, uh, she sort of takes the initiative. She's a strong woman. We saw that in the last chapter. She was a shepherdess. She's a hardworking woman, wasn't waiting around for a husband to rescue her uh, while she was single, applied herself uh, in a, in a man's society and did a man's job and worked as hard as she could and was good at what she had done. And here in this situation, she reacts by taking the situation in her own hands and saying, so if I'm not getting what I want here, let me give you my servant. And then if my servant bears children, it's as if those children are from me. And so she does that. But then what that leads to is Leah doing the exact same thing with her servant. And it just gets complicated. And we have a lot of kids who we have no confidence that the future is going to be great in terms of how they interact with each other. And Jacob in this situation almost comes across as totally passive. And like, Jacob, where are you? Where are the conversations that are being had in this situation? But he seems to so along with it, so much so that the stark language that Leah uses when she makes this negotiation because of uh, Reuben is that she then comes to Jacob and she says, I have hired you. Like, I paid to be with you tonight. Well, that's the, the language of prostitution, but you're talking to your spouse. That, that's not an indication of a healthy dynamics at all in this family. But that's how the the bitterness and the jealousy and the rivalry has escalated to the point that she she acknowledges she basically doesn't get to see her husband ever, and so she has to negotiate something to be able to spend time with him. But Rachel does negotiate it, allows for it to happen, and then we get to see the beginning of things changing, uh, in part. It doesn't change drastically or dramatically, But there's the beginning of a turn. But things do go from bad to worse. So whenever in our minds we're stuck in a situation and we think it can't get any worse than this, that's just one of those phrases you don't want to say out loud. (laughs) Because unfortunately, sadly, many times, things can get worse. Um, There are so many hidden things that we don't realize, ways in which we've been protected or insulated by God that because we didn't see what he did, we don't realize even how much worse things could be. But this situation is beginning to re- reveal itself that wherever they were at the end of chapter 29 and what we thought maybe was just foreshadowing has, has now uh, fully blossomed and there's gonna be conflict in the home. There's conflict between them as sisters and we are left to wonder what, could, what good could possibly come from this situation? <laughs> Like, what is God going to do here and now? One of the first hurdles to climb in a situation like this is to simply believe that repentance is possible. When things do go from bad to worse and you feel like you're just stuck and you don't have a lot of good options before you, one of the things in your own heart and your own mind that you then wrestle with is the idea of it ever being possible for things to change you can look back and see how this has gone wrong and this has gone wrong and this has gone wrong and you just feel stuck And that if someone comes to you and says okay i know that's horrible but do you believe things can change if you don't believe things can change then the hole just keeps getting bigger and bigger but if in all of the mistakes and all of the mess and in all of the complications, there is some way in which you believe it is possible to repent, which repentance, the idea is to turn and head the other direction. that It doesn't have to keep going down. We don't have to keep digging the hole deeper and deeper. There is some way for us to say, this doesn't seem to be working for anyone. <laughs> Things don't seem to be getting better Can we? Is it possible to repent? So as I was driving in, I was reminded of a song and thinking of this situation that's maybe not the best theological song. It's just a country song. But the refrain of the chorus is, when you're going through hell, keep on going. Don't slow down. If you're scared, don't show it. You might get out before the devil even knows you're there. And for me, it's a, an encouraging song to say: If you think you're in a really, really bad situation and you feel like you're going through hell on earth, acknowledge it, but then don't stop. <laughs> Keep going. When you see how messed up it is, when you see how complicated it is, allow that to get you to respond in such a way to say, "I don't want to do this anymore." I. I don't want to think that if I just keep doing more of it, it's somehow going to get better. Like, no, that's, that's not going to be the equation for where we get out of this situation. But here, for multiple people, we see repentance begin to take shape in their part. And so to get there, though, is on their, that, that they have to cross that hurdle of believing repentance is possible. This is a horrible situation they're in, but it doesn't have to end here. We don't have to stay here. It doesn't have to be stuck here. This does not have to be the end of the story. And so repentance is possible, but then what we see is repentance is personal. In other words, repentance looks different for people involved. In this chapter, we kind of zoom in on Rachel and then Jacob. But for Rachel, repentance for her is to stop trying to control everything. She's angry. She's frustrated with what's going on. And so her response that kind of kicks off this chapter is to take things into her own hands and say, here's my servant. And that starts a chain of events where in her attempt to control the situation, things go from bad to worse. And so things begin to change for her when she stops trying to control the situation. So that when Leah comes and says, well, will you negotiate this with me? And stop limiting my access to who is also my husband. It's at that very moment when Rachel makes that negotiation, if you will, letting go of the control that she was trying to have that we then read where something changes in verse 22. And so then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb and she conceived and bore of son. And that's where the narrative changes in her story. Up until that point, it was her taking action and doing things, and then as she names the kids, the name is is an expression of faith that this means God's doing this or that, but God's not saying a whole lot. (laughs) It's not until verse 22 where then the narrator is saying, actually, this is what God is doing, and this is how God is responding. And God is responding in part to the repentance that Rachel is willing to assume. But for her, repentance means as she's been trying to fix everything and control everything and do what she can and realizing it's only getting worse to back off and say, am I trying to be in the place of God? Am I acting that if things just went the way I wanted them to go, everything would be better? Because that's the rhetorical question that Jacob asked her in the beginning. Like, I'm not God, you're not God. What? And we're not gonna make anything better by trying to be God-like and trying to take control over this situation just because we're frustrated with where we are. And it's at the very place when she can recognize that, when she's no longer trying to do that, that then God says, and I do see what you're going through. I do see the frustrated desires of your heart. I do see all of the complications that are there. And he makes clear to her that she's not going to be stuck in that situation. That this is not where it's going to end. That in spite of all of her actions, God is able to do something with it and do something from it. And so we don't know what's going to happen with this Joseph yet. One of the things that, you know, is a danger for those of us that know the Bible is we kind of know some of the rest of the story and we have to forget that for a moment because Rachel doesn't know. Jacob doesn't. know. No one knows what's going to happen with this person named Joseph and what God is going to do through his life. Here it's just the very, very beginning. But repentance has to start somewhere. The turning around has to begin at a point in time. For Jacob, his repentance is in the opposite direction because like we said, Jacob's very passive. He just seems to be going along with everything and things are going from bad to worse. So what Jacob needs to do in his repentance is to begin to assert and assume more responsibility than he has. We said last week he came into it knowing that no one was vouching for him and that he had to work a long time to earn the approval of his father-in-law. Here, we're in a different situation. The father-in-law sees what he's doing, has actually become pretty wealthy off of the work that he's done, and is more than willing to continue to manipulate the situation. And so Jacob feels like a servant in all of his relationships. He feels like he's stuck. So for Jacob, repentance means going to Laban and saying, it's time for me to move on. I can't live under your shadow anymore. The dynamics of what's happening here and what's going on in this family is not healthy, and I need to take, yes, all of his wives. He's not trying to get out of any of the commitments he's made. He's not trying to neglect any of the children who've been born, whatever the circumstances for which they were born. He assumes the responsibility for all of them, but says, it is now my time to take them from here and to care for all of them. So for Rachel, she had to learn to stop doing things. For Jacob, his repentance means he has to start doing some things. And the Bible describes sin in both of those ways. There are sins of commission, when we know there's things we shouldn't do and we do them. And so repentance means stop. But then there's also sins of omission, things that we know we should do. But we just say, oh, I don't really care. I'm not going to do that today. Maybe I'm going to do that tomorrow. And both of those, sins of commission and sins of omission, are sins. But repentance for both of them looks different. It's personal depending on the situation. And so Jacob repents in that he changes his behavior. He turns around, he goes to Laban directly and says, it's time for me to move on. And then Laban says, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. You want to leave? How much more can I pay you to keep you here? Is basically what he says. Business is really good when you're around. You're telling me you're about to move on to another company. What do I have to do to keep you here? And Jacob says, no, 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 that's that's not what I'm, I'm not threatening something as a negotiation ploy. Like, it's time to go. He says, but to make sure that you know I'm not taking anything from you, I'm, I'm not trying to steal I'm not trying to get out of anything. I'm trying to assume responsibility. I'm trying to take ownership over what is mine. Let's separate the animals that we have together and let's separate them in such a way that it's very clear which ones are mine and which ones are yours. So it's not a scientific explanation for this. This is just, this helps us keep track. Give me all the ones that have spots on them or different colors so that it's very clear those are mine and these are yours. Laban says, sounds good to me. And then in the middle of the night, he takes everything that Jacob had just listed, removes them from the flocks, and gives them to his sons. So that when Jacob wakes up, this negotiation that he just made with his father-in-law, and he's looking at all these animals and he's saying, I don't get a whole lot. (laughs) We just made this agreement. I get all this, you get all that, and someone has taken all of this. There's not a lot for him. So he does have to work. And so the way that the story unfolds, and for Hart, we're reading about sticks and stuff, and we're like, what's going on? Jacob is trying to acquire for himself through breeding now animals that he can take with him because his father-in-law has again deceived him, tricked him out of something. And so what we also learn about repentance is that repentance is challenged. It is possible, it has to be personal, but we also have to recognize that when we make a turn in our own lives and we feel convicted about something and say we don't want to keep going that way and we start moving in the right direction, not everyone is going to high-five us. Not everyone is going to be excited for us. In sort of an extreme contemporary version, someone who's wanting to get off of an addiction to drugs and wanting to do everything they can to do that. Well, the moment that person makes a decision, that complicates things for the person who's selling them the drugs. They don't want them to change their mind. They don't want them to get off of it because they're making money off of their addiction. So you have people in their family that might be saying, yes, thank you, yes, please stop doing this. But that doesn't mean everyone is going to be encouraging them. That doesn't mean there's going to be no challenges because there are other people who will be saying, no, don't stop. Isn't this what we do together? Isn't this how we have fun together? Why are you going to stop doing it? If you stop doing that, who am I going to be with? And sometimes we get the impression in our minds that if we do just make the commitment, if we make the turn, if we decide to repent, then the path will be easy. The doors will be wide open. And God will just make it easy for us to repent. Instead of realizing, no, we, we do live in a fallen world. There are a lot of complications from the sins that we have made. And when we begin to take seriously God's will for our lives, when we accept responsibility and try to not stay stuck where we are, we become targets for the enemy. We have other people that will try to shoot us down and say, you can't change. You told me you were going to try. You you can't change. I've seen you do that. No, it's not possible. You can't be different. You'll always be this way. And an act of faith is to continue in our repentance in spite of those challenges and say, no, we still believe it's possible. It is something that we have to do and it has to be a commitment that we make personally because it will be challenged by other people. And for all of us, we hit that place at different points in time. This situation had to go from bad to worse. There had to be a a rock bottom for Rachel and a rock bottom for Jacob to get them to see they don't want to live this way anymore. And for us, we're all, by personality and temperament and past experience, we hit that place differently. But repentance is the basic message of the Scripture that every one of us has to repent in order to come to Christ. That was the message of John the Baptist, to prepare everyone for the coming of Jesus, to tell everyone before he comes what we need to do to experience what he's going to do for us is we need to own our sin. We need to acknowledge it. We need to admit that it really exists instead of what we would do is delete everything out or put black marker over it so nobody could read the details over what we've done and the mistakes we've made. And that's so often our temptation for how to deal with our own sin, to ignore it, to cover it up, to hope that no one ever finds out. But what we have is this amazing scriptural example of painfully recording the sin, but as a way to acknowledge that the only way forward is in being completely honest with who we are, with what our struggles are, with what the challenges are. And to believe in that, however, that repentance is possible. Now, by the time we get to the end of the chapter, not everything is changed and not everything is redeemed. There's many more chapters to go in Genesis. But it has to start somewhere. The turning around, the stopping, has to start somewhere. And you might be at that place right now where you're not sure what it all means. You're not necessarily sure how yet to get out of the hole, but you do realize you're in a hole and you want to stop digging. And you need a place, a time and a place in your own mind, and in your own heart that you can look to and say, I am deciding to not stay stuck I want to acknowledge that this is a mess. And that can be this morning. That can be right now. That can be this afternoon when you're out on a walk. That could be tomorrow when you're on your way to work. It can be whenever you feel convicted by the Spirit. But the question is, in that moment, will you stop? Will you turn? Will you choose to start somewhere, to start now, knowing that there's going to be challenges along the way, but knowing that even those challenges aren't going to be as bad as going deeper in the challenges that your sin will build for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. And we thank you for the the honesty of your word. For the struggles that we can read in other people's lives. And we pray that you would rescue us from a, a judgmentalism whenever we look at someone else's life. Sometimes it's easiest for us to see the faults in other people and not as easy to see our own struggles and our own sins and our own faults. But I do pray if there is anyone here who feels stuck in a situation that has gone from bad to worse and that is genuinely wondering whether repentance is possible, that through your spirit, through your word, you would help their eyes to be lifted up, for their hearts to be strengthened, that they would be able to confess that they don't have to stay in the situation that they're in. That you do provide a way of escape, a way of change, a new future because of your great love for us. As we sing this song now about your grace and how it breaks our chains, how it sets us free and gives us new possibilities. We pray that as you hear our voices lift this song up, that for every one of us, you would help them to be not just words on our lips, but conviction in our heart, to accept and receive the grace that you offer, and to break free from our sins of omission and our sins of commission. It's in your name we pray, amen.